We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> you talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Dew Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Away we go, episode 42 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Monday, April 19th, 2021. I hope you had a nice weekend. I know I had a nice weekend. I caught up on sleep Saturday night into Sunday like it was my job. It was glorious. My sleep is all screwed up these days because of this podcast and the Nat Chad podcast. And I say that not to complain, just to enlighten. And so Saturday night, I fell asleep at like 8 o'clock. I was done. And our three-year-old son comes into our bed at like 3.30 in the morning. We probably should not let him do that. That's a bad job of parenting on my part and on my wife's part. I get that. I understand that. If I was doing a podcast about my parenting, I would be ripping myself for allowing that to happen. But anyway, he comes into the bed. I get up. 
And what I've actually been doing is then going to his room and laying in his bed. So yes, he essentially dethrones me. He unseats me from my bed. I get demoted from the major league bed to the alternate training side bed. And so I'm not proud of that. I probably shouldn't be admitting that on this podcast. But anyway, I do that and I fell right back asleep, man. I mean, you know, I, I watched TV for like a little while on my iPad, but then that was it. I was out. I was out until like 7.15. So I ended up getting like 11 hours of sleep, which for me is a lot. I know some of you are probably like, whatever, I do that all the time. No, I don't. I almost never do that. So it was nice. I consider that a win of a weekend. You take the wins however you can get them. That to me is a W over the weekend. So anyway, good to have you on board. I hope you had your win over the weekend. We have a lot to get into regarding our Washington football team. Ron Rivera and Martin Mayhew spoke at length on Friday in a pre-draft Zoom press conference. Today, Monday, marks 10 days from the first round, which is going down Thursday night, April 29th. A whole lot to unpack from what Ron and Martin had to say, including plenty on potentially drafting a quarterback, what the thinking may be at linebacker, and what's going on with Landon Collins. Wait until you hear Don Ron's answer about Landon having said on social media that he will not be moving from safety to linebacker. Oh, I think we may have a difference of opinion on that one. Uh, We'll get into that uh, in just a little bit. Very busy weekends for the Capitals, Nationals, and Wizards with, believe it or not, the Wizards having the best weekend. The damn Washington Wizards. Yes, thank you, Stephen A. Smith. And how great is Daniel Gafford? I know not everyone listening cares about the Wizards, but I want to be Daniel Gafford when I grow up. He was tremendous in two wins for the Wiz over the weekend, as was Russell Westbrook. We'll talk Wizards. There's a ton going on with the Caps, who have a huge week coming up. And there's a lot going on with the Nats, who have some real problems right now, including putting Steven Strasburg on the 10-day injured list on Sunday morning, I'll be getting into all that's going on with our teams on this podcast, as I always do, including the Orioles, who actually ended up having a pretty good weekend themselves. Who'd have thunk it, right? The Wizards and the Orioles both doing well over the weekend. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. I got this email from Dr. CCB, Carolyn Conway Branch. CCB is a go-go band, critical condition band. I'm not sure if the doctor knows that or not, but if the doctor does know that, she should be very proud of being Dr. CCB. I'm classy in all time. Go, go classic. Anyway, uh, writes Dr. Carolyn, I've been a loyal listener to Sports Talk Radio for the past 10 years. I absolutely love your podcast and your magnificent run with all variations on 980. Yes, uh, there were many variations at 980. I too am an early morning warrior. I work at JBAB, I actually had to Google that, that is Joint Base Anacostia Bowling, and yes, Danny, I did say Google that. That's very, very hard to do. You should Google that. Yes, I should, and I did, Danny, thank you. Uh, continues Dr. Carolyn, and I'm at work at 0400. I love that, the military time giving there, 4 a.m., that's an early morning warrior, Carolyn. Uh, she continues, keep up the great work, love the podcast, like that you keep it clean, And even I have now adjusted (laughs) to the opening music. That's the best part right there. Another convert to the intro song to this podcast. You can't beat that. All right, so to get us warmed up here, talking and thinking NFL draft, uh, take a listen to this. It came out very late Sunday night from NBC NFL insider Peter King in his Football Morning in America column. Old Peter did some research 
And what he did is he went back to 1980 and he separated the last 41 NFL drafts into two periods, 1980 through 2000 and 2001 through 2020. And in each year, he recorded when the first quarterback was picked, then figured the average draft position in each of the two eras. So again, 1980 through 2000 and 2001 through 2020. The average draft slot of the first quarterback picked in drafts from 1980 to 2000 was, guess what? 13.9. How about that? And the average draft slot of the first quarterback picked in drafts from 2001 through 2020, 2.1. Over the last 20 drafts, the first quarterback has been picked with the following pick numbers. Here we go. 1, 1, 1, 1, 1, 3, 1, 3, 1, 1, 1, 1, 16. That was EJ Manuel by the Buffalo Bills in 2013. And then 3, 1, 1, 2, 1, 1, and 1. The first pick was a quarterback seven times between 1980 through 2000. The first pick was a quarterback 15 times from 2001 through 2020. And Peter's research isn't necessarily shocking. It is, though, of course, further validation of something that is inescapable as we continue to talk about the Washington football team and get ready for the 2021 NFL draft. And that is that the quarterback position in the NFL has never mattered more and has never been valued more. And it's not like this is breaking news, but man, does this research crystallize this? I mean, again, average draft slot of the first quarterback picked in drafts from 1980 through 2000, 13.9. I mean, that's unfathomable right now that a quarterback, the first quarterback taken would go number 14. I mean, no way. It's number one, number two, at worst, number three. And even that seems low at this point. The NFL has changed so much over the years. And I know that it can always change back, but I'm not sure that this changes in any of our lifetimes. The quarterback position being viewed the way it was in the 80s and 90s versus how it's viewed now. And it's not like the quarterback position wasn't viewed as being important back then, but now it's at a level that no position in major pro sports in this country has ever been at. The importance of the quarterback position has never been higher. And so that brings us to Ron Rivera and Martin Mayhew. Yeah, and I wouldn't be surprised if on draft night this comes up in the Washington war room between Ron and Martin and who knows who else. Outrageous commissions. They're a problem for everyone. You sell your home, you got to give tens of thousands of dollars of your money to the real estate agent. Who wants to do that? Whoever feels great about doing that. Well, what if I told you that the commission to the real estate agent no longer has to be a part of selling your home? One of the great supporters of this podcast, John Grenlin, John G with Real Broker, is changing the way that real estate is done. He is selling homes for free. That's right, for free. Zero commission, and you don't lose out on anything. Here's how this works. For those living in Northern Virginia, if you buy and sell with John, the commission paid to John when you sell is refunded back to you when you buy, making the total commission paid to John when you sell zero. 
If you're not selling a home in Northern Virginia, no worries. John can connect you with a top producing partner agent who can offer you the same great services with a discounted fee. Some conditions do apply. But just ask Sean, who had John sell a single family home in Vienna. Said Sean, John is one of the most professional, knowledgeable, and responsive realtors I have ever had the privilege of working with. John helped my wife and I quickly secure and close on our dream home. Ever since closing, John has been an outstanding source of knowledge to help us locate contractors and handymen for many of our projects. Yes, expansive services, even services beyond buying and selling your home, and with the lowest commission possible, zero. Find out what John Grandland can do for you. Go to this website right now, johngsellsforfree.com. You have nothing to lose. johngsellsforfree.com. Or better yet, call John Grandland. Tell him you want what you heard about on the Al Galdi podcast. Zero commission sale of your home. The phone number is 703 703- 537-6747. That's 703-537-6747. John Grandland, zero commission sale. Tell him Al Galdi sent you and start packing. All right, so Monday is a big day for Trey Lance. It is the day of his second pro day. It's not often the quarterback or really anyone conducts the second pro day, but we're seeing multiple second pro days this draft season. Justin Fields conducted a second pro day This past Wednesday, Lance conducting a second pro day on Monday. Now, Lance did not run a 40 at his first pro day. Going to be interesting to see if he runs one at his second pro day. That was something that I talked about with the radio voice of North Dakota State football, Jeff Colhane, on Friday's podcast. Jeff had a lot of great insight into Lance. You should definitely check out the interview if you haven't already. It is in episode 41 of the Al Galdi podcast. Starts at about 27 and a half minutes in. But we have, of course, heard so much about the Washington football team potentially trading up in the first round to take Trey Lance. Of course, it's not just Lance in terms of quarterbacks who Washington conceivably could trade up for. Fields has been all over the place in mock drafts. What if he falls? Might Washington trade up for him? And so with the first round of the NFL draft coming up on Thursday night, April 29th, we are getting closer. We had Ron Rivera and Martin Mayhew speaking via Zoom press conference on Friday. Interestingly, it was not Ron and Marty Herney. It was not Ron, Marty, and Martin. It was Ron and Martin. Now, does that mean that Martin has more power than Marty has? We do not know. Does this just mean that Martin has more say-so in the draft than Marty has? We do not know. Maybe this was just because Marty was busy, you know? He had some things going on. Uh, maybe this was just because Marty isn't a fan of doing press conferences. You know, I have heard uh, that Marty is not a big fan of talking to the media, which is ironic because he used to work in the media. Marty Herney, and a lot of you listening probably know this, but he was a sports writer for the Washington Star from 1978 to 1980 and the Washington Times from 1983 to 1987. Yes, Marty Herney was part of the dreck that is sports media. He was part of the dark hole, the abyss that is sports media. Uh, he ended up working for the Washington football team as director of public relations, took on that role beginning in April 1988. So he went from working in the media to working for the team, and that was the start of his career working in the NFL. But yeah, there's definite irony in a guy who used to work in the media not enjoying talking to the media, although I would not doubt for a second that those two things are in fact related. Um, But anyway, whatever the case, we had Ron and Martin doing the talking on Friday in a pre-draft Zoom press conference that lasted for more than 30 minutes. And of course, we were not told specifically what Washington is planning come the 2021 NFL draft. But we got some good stuff that I think is worth going through here on the podcast today. And yes, there was a lot of talk about Washington 
potentially drafting a quarterback. It is so funny, right? Because the signing of Ryan Fitzpatrick seemingly drastically lessened the likelihood of Washington drafting a quarterback. I know I felt that way. Uh, you know, certainly drafting a quarterback over the first few rounds. And yet it feels like that's what we've been talking about, right? Washington potentially drafting a quarterback. And we should be talking about that because it's a big deal and it does remain on the table. Anyway, Martin Mayhew on Friday on the necessity of going after a quarterback in this draft. It's a really good question and, and one that I won't answer. I mean, I won't get into that for, for just for strategic reasons, but uh, we do feel very uh confident and comfortable with the quarterbacks on our roster right now. Um, I'm excited about working with each and every one of those guys, and, and we'll see where it goes. Yes, we will see where it goes. I think the most interesting part of that answer is Martin Mayhew saying, we do feel very confident and comfortable with the quarterbacks on our roster right now. But of course, we have no idea if he really means that when he says that, or is he just saying that? Again, right before that, Martin Mayhew said, I won't get into that for strategic reasons, right? There is a lot of strategery going on right now when it comes to pre-draft conversation from teams. When it comes to Mayhew's and Herney's histories, of drafting quarterbacks. And it's debatable how much these histories matter because Ron Rivera is in charge now. This is Ron's show, Don Ron's show. This is the coach-centric approach. So as long as the owner doesn't swoop in and dictate Washington's first round pick, we do believe that Ron Rivera is making the final call on what Washington does, certainly in the first round. But Martin Mayhew, as Detroit Lions general manager, only ever drafted one quarterback. And that was Matthew Stafford, number one overall in the 2009 NFL Draft. That's it. Martin Mayhew was Detroit's GM for years, but the only quarterback Mayhew took during his time as Lions GM was Stafford at number one overall in 09. Marty Herney, as Carolina Panthers general manager, yes, took Cam Newton number one overall in 2011, but Herney also drafted two other quarterbacks, and they did not go so well. Uh, Marty spent a second-round pick on Jimmy Clausen in the 2010 NFL draft. Yes, the year before Carolina took Cam at one, Carolina took Clawson in round two. So that's a huge mistake, right? The Clawson pick totally ended up missing, so much so that Carolina the next year spent a number one overall pick on Cam Newton. And Herney also took Will Greer in the third round of the 2019 NFL draft. So Clawson clearly did not work out. Greer so far has not worked out. I mean, maybe things change as time goes on. But for now, Will Greer does not look like he's going to end up hitting. So you have to say, I mean, Cam is a hit, yeah, but a lot of us could have made that pick. Clawson miss, Greer right now is a miss. What about the lack of success for quarterbacks drafted in the top fives of some recent NFL drafts? We've talked a lot about this on the podcast in recent weeks. But, you know, if you widen the lens even, Jameis Winston, Marcus Mariota, Mitchell Trubisky, Sam Darnold, all top five misses in drafts in recent years at the quarterback position. You could also argue Jared Goff and Carson Wentz. It's more complicated with those guys, but those guys, original teams have parted ways with those guys this offseason. Martin and Ron on Friday on if recent drafted quarterbacks' lack of success impacts Washington's thought process for this upcoming draft, and we'll begin with Martin Mayhew. Yeah, well, um, yeah, I mean, it's again, not to get into specific positions, um, but yeah, I mean, I, the, you know, the quarterback decision, the quarterback position is a very difficult position to play. And, and as, as we're witnessing now, they're not really 32 uh, great starters in the National Football League right now. There's been a lot of movement this offseason. Um, I anticipate that will continue. Uh, it's, it's something that you're always looking for. Uh, if you don't have one as a GM, you're always looking for that. 
I don't think that process ever stops. Um, and I think there's a lot of pressure on, on that position. You know, um, a lot of these guys, um, you know, have been very, very highly recruited, very, you know, highly thought of, uh, have not faced as much adversity as they face going to an in, in NFL city and dealing with the expectations. Um, I think that's certainly part of the process. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, this is a very, it's a very, very difficult position to play. Uh, I don't think that all the guys that don't make it, um, are not good football players. I think a lot of times it has to do with the circumstances that those guys get put into. Uh, that has a lot to do with whether they, they succeed or fail. Um, so, um, again, we feel very, uh, confident with the group that we have. Like any position, if we can upgrade it, we'll try to up, try to up, upgrade it. But we feel confident uh, and uh, feel good about the group that we have right now. I echo uh, Martin's uh, sentiments on that. You know, it's a very difficult position, and 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 as as everybody knows, where you're being picked is no guarantee of success. So a lot of it has to do with 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 who you pick. A lot of it has to do with um, that person's makeup. And a lot to do with your team. You know, do you, does that, do you have the ability to protect that player? And, and do you have playmakers around that player? Um, so there's a lot of factors that go into it. So it's, it's, it's a little bit of a crapshoot as well. It is. It's such a crapshoot. And that's why I keep coming back to even if you like a lot of things about Trey Lance and Justin Fields, are you that certain about either guy to where paying what it's going to take to go from number 19 to number four overall is worth it? Where you say, okay, the three ones and the multiple other picks and maybe the significant player that we have to sacrifice to move up to take this guy, it's all worth it because we really do believe this guy is going to hit. It's not about whether you believe the guy could be great. It's about whether you believe the guy will be great. There are things to like about every player in the NFL draft. The question is, how certain are you? Are you willing to put your money? Are you willing to put your draft capital? Are you willing to put your assets where your mouth is when it comes to your belief in a given quarterback? This isn't going from eight to four. This is going from 19 to four. That's a huge leap. And that's what I keep coming back to when it comes to all this Trey Lance and even Justin Fields talk of Washington potentially trading up. You may like a lot about each guy. I like a lot about each guy. But I don't like enough and I'm not certain enough to where I'm like, yeah, do whatever it takes to get that guy. Remember, you're going up to number four to get, in theory, the fourth best quarterback in this draft. And even if you don't think he's that, maybe you think the guy is the second or third best quarterback, but it's not like you're going up to get Trevor Lawrence. It's where it's like there's this extreme certainty that Lawrence is going to hit. You don't have that with Lancer Fields. One of the undeniable phenomenons in the NFL over the last few offseasons is the movement of veteran quarterbacks. And this has to be injected into the mix, right? Last offseason, Tom Brady, Philip Rivers, Cam Newton, Andy Dalton, all changing teams. This offseason, Ryan Fitzpatrick, Matthew Stafford, Jared Goff, Carson Wentz, Mitchell Trubisky, Dalton again, Sam Darnold, all changing teams to say nothing of unhappiness for guys like Deshaun Watson and Russell Wilson. And of course, it remains quite possible that especially Deshaun ends up changing teams. Ron on Friday, on if this recent trend of off-season movement of veteran quarterbacks has impacted Washington's quarterback thinking, i.e., maybe we don't have to draft our quarterback of the future. We can simply wait for the next available veteran and acquire that guy to be our quarterback of the future. Well, I think from a big-picture perspective, it's really about getting the right quarterback, whether it's a young guy or an old guy. 
you've got to look and say, hey, this is the fit that we need. This is the fit that we want. Now it's the time. We'll see. Again, you know, as far as the draft's concerned, we're going to react to what happens in front of us. You know, picking at 19, kind of putting us in uh, in, uh, in the middle um, is going to be interesting as far as uh, we're concerned. Yes, and that was, of course, another largely vanilla answer from Ron Rivera. Neither he nor Morton was revealing much on Friday, and that's exactly the way that things should be in a pre-draft press conference. Of course, it is possible that Trey Lance falls or Justin Fields falls or maybe both fall. And so in order to get either guy, you don't have to make some massive trade up. You know, if Fields is available at 14, going from 19 to 14 clearly is not going to be as costly as going from 19 to four, but you can't be counting on that. And we know the way it does tend to work with quarterbacks. They go sooner than they should, if anything, not later than they should. And especially right now in this NFL, in which quarterbacks are so valued, and this quarterback class in particular is viewed as being one of the best quarterback draft classes in years. And we'll see if that pans out, because we've heard this before, that a quarterback draft class is going to be outstanding, and then it ends up flopping, or it ends up being underwhelming. You know, the 2012 quarterback class comes to mind, where it was supposed to be this generational class, and while it has produced some very good quarterbacks, it did not produce those quarterbacks who were supposed to be great as being great. The first five quarterbacks taken in the 2012 NFL draft, Andrew Luck, Robert Griffin III, Ryan Tannehill, Brandon Whedon, and Brock Osweiler. Luck, Griffin, Tannehill, and Whedon were all first-round picks. Osweiler was a second-round pick. Luck was a hit, but his career was short due to the early retirement. We know what happened with Robert, one great year and then nothing. Tannehill, it took years for him to develop, and it's really only over the last two seasons that he's been good, and with a different team, not the team that drafted him, the Miami Dolphins, but his second team, the Tennessee Titans. Whedon, a bust. Osweiler, a bust. The next three quarterbacks taken in the 2012 draft. Russell Wilson, third round. Washington, remember, took Josh Laribas four spots ahead of Russell Wilson. Thank you, Mike Shanahan. What I'm trying to do is be as honest as I can, and I don't normally do that. Yes, thank you, Mike. Uh, Nick Foles went in the third round, and Kirk Cousins went in the fourth round. So two of the three best quarterbacks out of that 2012 draft, at least in terms of the bigger picture, Russell Wilson and Kirk Cousins went in the third and fourth rounds respectively, okay? And the four first round guys, Luck, Griffin, Tannehill, Whedon, only Luck was a true hit. Tannehill has been mixed. He's played well the last two years, but again, with his second team. So you never know with these quarterback classes, that is true. And to that end, you know, something I've heard recently is, well, next year's quarterback class isn't going to be very good. So you got to get while the getting's good with this year's quarterback class. We don't know. We just don't know. Like, it's easy to say now what you think the 2022 quarterback draft class will be. But who the heck knows? So many things can change over the next 12 months. You think about some recent top picks in NFL drafts. Kyler Murray was viewed very differently spring of 2018 versus spring of 2019. Joe Burrow was viewed very differently spring of 2019 versus spring of 2020. Things can change drastically. So don't just assume, well, now they say the quarterback class is going to be bad next year. Ergo, it will be bad. Like, okay, now maybe it doesn't look outstanding, but so many things can change between now and and this time next year. I would not let the strength of a given quarterback class dictate what you do at the position. I would let my football people's convictions in the quarterbacks dictate what I do from a quarterback standpoint. How much do you like those available to you? And what are you willing to give up to get any of those guys? And if you feel like the price is too much, or if there is a lot of doubt, or at least uncertainty 
with the quarterbacks realistically available to you, i.e. like, you know, Trevor Lawrence is off the table, Zach Wilson is off the table, then don't make the move. You don't have to do anything. That is one of the beauties of having Ryan Fitz. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Patrick. Taylor Heineke and Kyle Allen on the roster. We can debate what each guy brings to the table, but we know each guy is at the very least functional. We saw Washington function with Allen last year. We saw Washington not only function, but at times thrive with Heineke last season, especially in the playoff loss to Tampa Bay. And Ryan Fitzpatrick has been sneaky great over the last two seasons. Don't forget, top 10 in the NFL and total QBR each of the last two years. All right, guys, look, no one's perfect. Even the best baseball players strike out with the bases loaded. The best golfers sometimes three-putt with the tournament on the line. So if you feel like you come up short in the bedroom sometimes, it's perfectly okay. But if it's bothering you, there are options. Go to GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi now. With Roman, you can get a free online evaluation and ongoing care for ED, all from the comfort and privacy of your home. A U.S. licensed healthcare professional will work with you to find the best treatment plan. If medication is appropriate, it ships to you free with two-day shipping. The whole process is straightforward and discreet. Getting started is simple. Just go to GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi and complete an online visit. Take care of your ED without leaving home. Complete an online visit today to connect with a doctor and take care of it. Go to GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi now to get $15 off your first month. Look, there's a straightforward way to take care of your ED. GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi. Get started now to save $15 on your first month of treatment. So getting away from quarterback when it came to the Ron Rivera, Martin Mayhew dual pre-draft Zoom press conference for the Washington football team on Friday. What about the perpetual debate this time of year? Do you draft best player available or do you draft more for need? You probably know where I stand on this. I am best player available all the way. I think you can get yourself into so much trouble when you draft based on need. Needs change constantly. Today's position area of strength is tomorrow's position area of need, depending on an injury, depending on surprising underperformance. The NFL season is a roller coaster, man, and things that you never can foresee happening 
end up happening. You know, see what happened with Washington at strong safety last season when a seventh round rookie in Cameron Curl ended up being far better than the $14 million per year man Landon Collins was at the position. Speaking of him, more on him in a bit. But here was Martin Mayhew on Friday on his philosophy when it comes to BPA, best player available, versus drafting based on need. Yeah. I think there's definitely a balance between those two. Um, obviously, uh, you don't want to reach for players just because of what position that those players play. Uh, but by the same token, you have to be cognizant of what your needs are throughout the draft and try to fill those needs if possible. You do wonder if part of the reason Washington has not truly addressed both the linebacker and tight end positions so far this offseason is because Washington is planning on addressing those positions in the draft. And if so, I think that's a dangerous way of operating just because, again, you don't want to have the gun to your head of, well, you have to fill this need with this draft pick or you have to fill this need with this draft. You have to just get yourself a bunch of good players and sort it out afterward. Now, I think there could be a lot more to why Washington hasn't done more at linebacker and tight end this offseason, including maybe Washington liking more what it has on the roster currently than the rest of us may realize, including also maybe thinking that those position groups aren't nearly the areas of need that the rest of us perceive them to be. Speaking of linebackers, so there are two guys in particular who have come up a ton, right? Penn State linebacker Micah Parsons and Notre Dame linebacker Jeremiah Owusu-Koromoa. Each guy is incredibly gifted. Each guy could fit in beautifully with the Washington football team. You also think about this draft class and it being, in theory, loaded at offensive tackle. So many mocks already have had Washington taking the Virginia Tech offensive tackle, Kristen Darasaw, who in many other drafts would be considered the number one offensive tackle, but in this draft is more like the number three offensive tackle. What about the prospect of trading up for any of these guys or others? What about trading up for a non-quarterback in this draft? Here was Martin Mayhew on that on Friday. Well, I think, you know, not to get into specific positions, but anytime you look at moving up or down, it's just really about what, you know, can you create value making that move? Obviously, if you can move up and get a player you really like and not give up a whole lot, that's what you want to do. Um, you would move back if you can move back um, and, and, and get a lot in, in return for uh, moving back. So it's about the value that exists there either way. Um, uh, so from my standpoint, we're open to doing either right now. It's going to depend on, on just the entire process, and, and we're working through some things right now. I think it's really interesting when it comes to the linebacker position. Ron Rivera, Marty Herney, and Martin Mayhew do have a good history when it comes to drafting linebackers. So Washington, of course, has Don Ron as the head coach in the coach-centric approach. Marty Herney is the executive vice president of football slash player personnel, and Martin Mayhew is the general manager. Herney served two stints as Carolina Panthers general manager, 2002 to October 2012, July 2017, to December 2020. During that time, Herney drafted three linebackers who ended up killing it for the Panthers. Will Witherspoon in the third round of the 2002 NFL draft. Thomas Davis, number 14 overall in the 2005 NFL draft. He was obviously with Washington last season, his final NFL season. And John Beeson, number 25 overall in the 2007 NFL draft. All of those guys were taken prior to Ron Rivera coming on board as head coach. Someone who was taken by both Herney and Ron during their time together, the best linebacker of them all for the Panthers, and really one of the best linebackers in NFL history, Luke Keekley, number nine overall in the 2012 NFL draft. So the Panthers, during their time with either Herney or Herney and Ron, 
drafted Will Witherspoon, Thomas Davis, John Beeson, and Luke Kuechly. Four good to excellent linebackers. Martin Mayhew spent 15 years in the Detroit Lions organization, was their GM September 2008 to November 2015. Mayhew's draft track record, like Herney's, is mixed. But Mayhew did take two very productive linebackers for the Lions in his Detroit drafts. DeAndre Levy, third round, 2009, and Tyre Whitehead, fifth round, 2012. To whatever extent it matters, and again, I'm not sure how much it does. Every draft is different. This is a different organizational setup in which Ron Rivera presides above Martin Mayhew and Marty Herney. But there is a very solid track record for these guys when it comes to taking linebackers. Ron and Martin on Friday on their past successes with drafting linebackers. And we'll start with Ron. Well, I think, you know, going back and looking at what we've done, a lot of it has to do with, you know, um, has, has to do with the players that were available to begin with. Um, you know, my, my, my look, at, you know, when you got a guy like Luke Keekley. You know, that, that was a hard one to miss, to mess up. That's the truth. Um, you know, when you look at him and, and see the way he plays and see that he plays downhill and see that he plays with his, his, his hands and, and as smart as he is, um, that to me was a no brainer. Um, but when we picked Shaq Thompson, the thing that, you know, we looked at Shaq was position flex, athleticism, um, intelligence, because we were going to ask him to do a lot. And he fit the bill. Um, coming here and, 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 you know, looking at, at Cole Hokum and knowing here's an athletic guy that's smart, that, 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 that has some position flex, you felt good. Look at what we did, you know, having John Bostic and, and, and looking at great communication and leadership skills. You know, there's a guy that you felt really good about. Um, so as we dive into this, Bree, I, I think again, um, you know, just looking for position flex guys, guys that can play more than one spot because today's game does ask that because, um, you know, what we call our Sam linebacker in our defense uh, is going to end up playing like a Buffalo nickel, you know, like a big nickel at times. So we, we're going to need a guy that has that kind of flexibility. If we start looking at that, you look at our, our will position is a guy that can play like a Mike that can play downhill, can be stout. Um, you know, but he's also got that position flex that if you get in the pinch, he can play the mic. And the mic really is, is just got to be a great communicator. So as we look at all three of those spots, you know, we sit there and we say, you know, if we get a guy that can be the will, a guy like Cole Holcomb, because his ability can play the Buffalo nickel. If you get the Buffalo nickel or the Sam type guy, he has the ability to come in. He can play the will. And then again, a mic is just a guy you're looking for that could play the will, play the mic, but also play the will if you had to have. So it's really, to me, a lot of it has to do about um, football intelligence, um, the ability to, 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 to have uh, multiple uh, position flex. Uh, those are the things that, that, that help and, and have helped us. Well, you know, linebacker position on the defense, you know, has to have a lot of uh, different skills. You know, he has some skills that are similar to what, you know, uh, the guys up front doing, also some skills to what the uh, secondary guys have. So, you know, the the, the varied skill set is really important, and that was important with, with Levy and uh, Tahir. Um, but, you know, I think every every – uh, Every scheme is different. Every every player has individual skills that, that that might appeal to us, and uh, you know we'll just make the best decision, you know, based on on what's available to us and and 
probably let just, just let our board speak to us as to, to who the best pick is. So Washington's lack of activity at linebacker this offseason has been notable. I mean, the only actual activity of any significance for the Washington football team at linebacker so far this offseason, Washington on March 18th, the second day of the NFL's new league year, announced the signing of unrestricted free agent linebacker David Mayo. And Washington on March 23rd announced the re-signing of unrestricted free agent linebacker Jared Norris, who's a special teams guy. That's it. That's what Washington has done at linebacker so far this offseason. And remember, Washington has lost a linebacker and Kevin Pierre-Lewis. He signed with the Houston Texans. Now, it is true that the free agent linebacker market was thinned in the days leading up to free agency with the likes of Levante David and Matt Milano re-signing with their teams. David with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, Milano with the Buffalo Bills. Uh, but Washington, you know, didn't go after somebody like a Kyle Van Noy who got released by the Miami Dolphins, ended up signing back with the New England Patriots. Washington does still have Cole Holcomb, does still have John Bostic, and does have Kalik Hudson. Uh, Hudson's a guy who Washington member took in the fifth round of last year's draft, but Hudson barely played on defense last season. In the regular season, Hudson played on just 4.9% of Washington's defensive snaps. He actually led Washington in special team snaps, but he only played on less than 5% of Washington's defensive snaps throughout the season. Washington does also have Josh Harvey Clemens, but he spent the entire 2020 season on the reserved opt-out list due to the COVID-19 pandemic. And this is a guy who was a seventh round pick in 2017 and hasn't done much so far in the NFL. Maybe Ron Rivera and Jack Del Rio love Josh Harvey Clemens, but we've never gotten that sense. You also have Reuben Foster, but he's a free agent. Uh, and Reuben is still out there. And I don't get the sense that he's necessarily going to be resigned. Remember, Reuben spent all of last season on the reserve slash injured list. And keep in mind, Washington put him on IR on September 5th in the cut down to 53. So Reuben was never eligible to be activated off IR. That's how much faith Washington had in Ruben being unable to play last season. Washington put him on IR at a time in which you could not make him eligible at any point to return. Remember, Ruben's still coming off the torn left ACL, LCL, MCL, and nerve damage suffered in that terrible injury that he suffered during the first OTA practice of the 2019 offseason. So yes, I mean, it's possible Ron and Jack like what Washington already has at linebacker more than anybody realizes, but especially given the public criticism put forth by Ron toward the linebackers last year, boy, wouldn't you think that upgrading at the position would be a priority this offseason? And yet it seemingly has not been. I mean, it makes you wonder if maybe the plan is just not to play a lot of linebackers once again next year. Remember, Washington, as last season went on especially, went with a lot of two linebacker looks. And, you know, it's four defensive linemen, it's two linebackers, and it's five defensive backs. And Washington, of course, like most other teams, is in nickel like 70% of the time anyway. So maybe it's just like, hey, linebacker just isn't that much of a priority. But I still feel like you want to be better at the position, even if you're only going to be playing two guys at a time. And so that brings us to Landon Collins. There, of course, has been quite a bit of chatter this offseason about Landon moving from strong safety to linebacker. Landon on social media has been very adamant about not moving to linebacker. This past March, Landon on Instagram, in response to a question about potentially moving to linebacker, wrote, quote, not happening, my guy, end quote. He does not seem enthused at all about a possible position switch. And so with that as a backdrop, boy, was it interesting to hear what Ron said on Friday about this. Ron Rivera got asked about Landon having said that he isn't moving to linebacker. 
Take a listen to what Ron said. Oh, that was Landon. You know, um, again, you know, our plan for Landon is to have him here, have him compete, and have him be a part of what we're doing going forward. And that was it. That was a very short, very non-expansive answer from Ron Rivera when it came to Landon Collins potentially moving from safety to linebacker. And what you did not get there from Ron was any kind of denial that Landon would be moving to linebacker. Said Ron, again, quote, that was Landon. Again, our plan for Landon is to have him here and have him compete and have him be a part of what we're doing going forward, end quote. What you did not get there from Ron was, Landon Collins is our starting strong safety, point blank, period. Or what you did not get from Ron there was, Landon Collins is a starting safety for us, period. Or what you did not get there from Ron was, Landon Collins is a safety for the Washington football team, period. No, it was, that was Landon. As in, that's what Landon is saying. That's not necessarily what I'm saying or what I will be doing. This is starting to become very interesting, the Landon Collins situation. Contractually, Washington is going into the third season of that mega money deal that the team signed Landon to in the 2019 offseason, a six-year, $84 million contract with $31 million fully guaranteed at signing and an average annual value in AAV of $14 million. Realistically speaking, Washington can't get out of that contract until after this upcoming season. So it's a situation not unlike the Alex Smith predicament where you got the guy under the big money deal, whether you like it or not, for at least one more year, right? Where Washington was at with Alex going into last season is essentially where Washington is at with Landon going into this season. Landon Collins played into seven games last season due to a ruptured Achilles tendon that was suffered in that 25-3 win over the Dallas Cowboys at a rainy FedEx field in Week 7. What's so funny about him getting injured in that game is Landon was having easily his best game of the season. You may recall this. The Cowboys' first offensive drive starts at the Cowboys' one off Kyle Allen getting stuffed on a fourth and goal quarterback sneak from the Cowboys one results in a first quarter safety thanks to a Landon Collins third and eight sack strip of Andy Dalton. The ball was recovered by the Cowboys tight end Dalton Schultz who got tackled in the end zone by Jonathan Allen, but Landon on that play blew by Schultz on a blitz for the sack and then did an excellent job of chopping the ball with his right arm out of Dalton's right hand. It was an exceptional play by Landon Collins. It was a kind of play, the likes of which he's made way too few of since he signed with the team. Landon overall for the 2020 season was not good. Overall grade for pro football focus of 60. Landon Collins got torched in coverage. If you go back to that 30-10 loss to the Los Angeles Rams at a rainy FedEx field, uh, Jared Goff had a second and six, 56-yard touchdown bomb to the receiver Robert Woods on the first snap of the second quarter. Ron Rivera, the day after the game, said that the touchdown was due to Landon Collins taking a bad angle in coverage. And then there was the tackling. Oh, my goodness, the tackling from Landon Collins last season. Landon, for the 2020 regular season per sport radar, totaled nine missed tackles, tying him for the fourth most missed tackles on Washington, despite playing in just seven games. And all nine of those missed tackles happened over the first four games of the season. There may not have been a bigger negative on defense for Washington in the first quarter of last season than Landon Collins tackling. I take you to that week three loss at the Cleveland Browns, 34-20. 
Washington in that game, multiple instances for the team of Landon Collins failing on attempted tackles. Landon and Troy Apke, another missed tackling culprit, failing on tackles on a Nick Chubb second quarter, first and 10, 16-yard touchdown run. Landon failing on an attempted tackle on a Nick Chubb fourth quarter, first and 10, 20-yard touchdown run. The next game, the week four loss to the Baltimore Ravens at FedEx Field, 31-17. Lamar Jackson had a first quarter, first and 10, 33-yard completion to receiver Marquise Hollywood-Brown, who made Landon miss brutally on an attempted tackle. Lamar Jackson, of course, in that game, the second quarter, third and four, 50-yard read option touchdown run on which he ran right by Ryan Anderson and then broke through an attempted tackle by Landon Collins. The tackling was brutal from Landon last season. And this was off a first season with Washington. That wasn't bad. I mean, it was solid, but it certainly wasn't great. Landon's overall grade in 2019 for pro football focus was 69.3, which was his worst overall grade for PFF since his 2015 rookie season. So, you know, it's not unlike the way things went with another big money defensive back free agent signing for Washington, Josh Norman. First season is solid, maybe not spectacular, but good. You know, you're not that disappointed by it, although you maybe feel like there's another level the guy can get to. And then things start to tail off. And that's how it felt like with Landon Collins last year. And then he got injured. Here's the bottom line when it comes to the Landon Collins situation. He needs to do whatever he's told to do. And it's really that simple. Now, I think that Landon is better than what we saw last year. I have a hard time believing that the woeful tackler that we saw, especially over the first four games of last season, is truly who Landon Collins is. But there's no doubt that he was bad. There's no doubt that he's limited and that you can't just flip him to free safety because coverage has always been a concern with Landon. I do get that you're in nickel a lot, so maybe you go with a lot of three safety looks and that is a possibility. But I'm not sure that Landon will be the fifth guy out there. In other words, you go William Jackson the third, Kendall Fuller, Jimmy Moreland, Cameron Curl, and say DeShazer Everett or Jeremy Reeves. I mean, you could argue that Landon Collins is the fourth best safety on Washington, given how guys played last season. And that does bring me to Cameron Curl. Whatever happens here, okay? Because at least with Everett and Reeves, they were more free safeties than strong safeties last year. When it comes to the strong safety spot, uh, ain't nobody supplanting Cameron Curl going into next season, okay? Unless Cameron Curl gets hurt. I don't care that Landon Collins is making $14 million per year and Cameron Curl was a seventh round pick in the 2020 draft. Cameron Curl has earned the starting strong safety job for the Washington football team. Cameron Curl ended up starting each of Washington's final 10 games last season, including the wild card round loss to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers at FedEx Field. And Cameron Curl, understand this, finished the regular season as pro football focuses highest graded rookie safety. There was not a rookie safety in the NFL last season, in the regular season, who registered a better overall grade than Cameron Curl's 68. Cameron Curl, during the 2020 regular season per PFF, played at least 150 snaps at each of three spots, box safety, free safety, and slot corner. Whereas with Landon, you are limited. He's got to be in the box. Otherwise, there's a problem. With Cameron Curl, there is more versatility. There is more, as Ron likes to say, position flex. I want Cameron Curl out there, and I don't care who makes what. I don't care who was drafted where. Curl is this team's starting strong safety. You know, he had three picks last season. He became the first Washington rookie to have an interception in each of two consecutive games since Carlos Rogers in 2005. It had been 15 years since a rookie defensive back for Washington had had a pick in each of two straight games until Cameron Curl did it 
last season. And remember the pick he had in Washington's biggest game of the regular season, the 2014 win at the Philadelphia Eagles on Sunday Night Football in Week 17 to clinch the NFC East. Curl with a first quarter, second and 10 interception of a Jalen Hurts pass as Curl did an excellent job of jamming the target. The tight end, Zach Hurts, gets the pick, ensuing Washington offensive drive. Starts at the Eagles 32, results in a Dustin Hopkins first quarter 42-yard field goal for a 10-0 Washington lead. I think the plan is for Curl to be the starting strong safety going into next season. And I think what's going to be fascinating is, well, does Washington just kind of keep Landon Collins as a safety two and go with a lot of three safety looks? Or is Landon Collins, whether he likes it or not, being moved to linebacker? And maybe Washington never announces it. Maybe Washington doesn't change the labeling on Landon. Maybe it's just one of these deals where just when Landon's on the field, he's playing more like a linebacker. You know, you can call it what you want. I mean, that's one of the cool things about the NFL now. It is becoming far more of a positionless game, especially when it comes to the secondary, that you have corners lining up as safeties, safeties lining up at corners, linebackers lining up as safeties, vice versa. So, you know, you can still call Landon Collins a safety, but when he's on the field, he can play more as a linebacker. And maybe that's the approach that Washington ends up taking. But you tell me, I mean, listen one more time to what Don Ron had to say on Friday. That, that to me was classic, no nonsense, my way or the highway, Ron Rivera. Landon can Instagram all the responses he wants, okay? But Ron certainly doesn't seem to be on board with what Landon is saying right now. You know, as the great in living color character, Homie the Clown said many years ago, Homie don't play that. Ron ain't playing that when it comes to Landon saying, I ain't moving from safety. Here you go, one more time, Ron on Friday. No, that was Landon, you know, um, again, you know, our plan for Landon is to have him here, have him compete, and have him be a part of what we're doing going forward. Yeah, that wasn't, yeah, what Landon said on Instagram is exactly what the case is. That was not, yes, we are committed to Landon Collins as a starting strong safety for the Washington football team. That was, well, that was Landon. Again, our plan for Landon is to have him here and have him compete and have him be a part of what we're doing going forward. That was very non-committal. That was very non-definitive. I don't think it necessarily means that Ron is moving Landon to linebacker. What I think it does mean is that Ron isn't guaranteeing Landon anything in terms of playing time. And Ron, I believe, is rightfully thinking Cameron Curl as the starting strong safety in 2021. Believe it or not, there are just about three and a half weeks left in the Capitals' regular season. It is set to be some kind of ride, and it's a ride that's going to get a whole lot more interesting in the coming days. So the Capitals go 1-1-0 and over the weekend, a 6-3 win at the Philadelphia Flyers on Saturday afternoon, followed by a 6-3 loss at the Boston Bruins on Sunday afternoon. Now, also on Sunday, the New York Islanders won at the Philadelphia Flyers, one nothing in overtime. The Pittsburgh Penguins lost at the Buffalo Sabres, 4-2. The New York Rangers won at the New Jersey Devils, 5-3. The Caps still are alone in first atop the East Division at 62 points, but listen to how bunched up things are now. Caps are two points ahead of the Islanders, three points ahead of the Penguins, six points ahead of the Bruins, and 10 points ahead of the Rangers. Yes, New York must be considered a factor at this point when it comes to the East Division. And next up for the Caps is this five-game gauntlet that I've been talking about on this podcast. The Capitals don't play again until this coming Thursday night, but listen to what begins on Thursday night, a stretch of three consecutive games against the Islanders. This is essentially going to be a mini playoff series, Caps and Isles. Caps and Trotsy and his Isles over the next three games here for the Caps. Caps are at the Islanders Thursday night at 7. 
then at the Islanders Saturday night at 7, then home to the Islanders the following Tuesday night at 7, and then after that, come back-to-back home games against the Penguins. Caps home to Pittsburgh Thursday night, April 29th, and then home again to Pittsburgh Saturday night, May 1st. That is a huge stretch of five games, and I just mentioned the Rangers. You could even add them to that mix because the Caps then have back-to-back games at the Rangers Monday night, May 3rd, Wednesday night, May 5th. The next seven games are all big games, in the East Division. And after those seven games, you have just three games left in the regular season. So things are finishing quickly. Remember this season in the NHL, it's a reconfigured NHL. All you do is play intra-division games. So this is what it's been for the Capitals. One game after another against the likes of the Islanders and the Penguins and the Bruins and the Rangers and the Devils and the Flyers and the Sabres. And these teams have become very familiar with each other. And the Caps still got to make a go of it here against some of the better teams in the East Division. Now, when it came to the two games for the Caps over the weekend, so clearly the best of the two was the win on Saturday afternoon, the 6-3 victory at Philadelphia. Game was tied to two in the second period. Caps then scored four of the game's final five goals. The Caps obliterated the Flyers in the puck possession battle. For all of the times this season I've talked about the Caps winning the game but losing the puck possession battle, that win on Saturday was an instance of winning both the game and the puck possession battle. The Caps per natural stat trick had 56 five-on-five shot attempts to the Flyers' 24. The Caps more than doubled up the Flyers in five-on-five shot attempts, including eight high-danger five-on-five shot attempts to the Flyers' one. I mean, just a tremendous job. Caps finished with 41 shots on goal, to the Flyers 25. Ilya Samsonov was the cap starting goaltender for a second time in five games and was fine. I mean, he wasn't great, but he was certainly good enough. Stopped 22 of the 25 shots on goal that he faced. Per natural stat trick went three of five on high danger shots on goal, three of three on medium danger shots on goal, and 15 to 16 on low danger shots on goal. So it really wasn't tested that much. The other nice thing about Saturday was that three of the Cavs' biggest stars had big games. Alex Ovechkin had two power play goals, a secondary assist, a game-high five shots on goal, a game-high 12 total shots, and a five-on-five shot attempt percentage of 72 per natural stat trick. The two goals for Ovi gave him 730 career regular season goals, so one shy is the grade eight of tying Marcel Dion for number five on the NHL's all-time regular season goals list. Also on Saturday, Evgeny Kuznetsov was good, second period even strength goal and two secondary assists, and he finished number three on the caps, and five on five shot at 10 percentage at 76.2 for natural stat trick. Did have a second period tripping penalty, but that was okay, and defenseman John Carlson had a huge game from a point producing standpoint on Saturday. His first career four assist game Three of the four assists were primary assists, and he had a five-on-five shot at 10 percentage of 73.7 per natural stat trick. So Ovi, Kuzi, Carly, uh, three of your biggest guns, three of your most well-paid guns all coming through on Saturday. But then came the 6-3 loss at Boston on Sunday afternoon, and this was a weird game. Caps actually overcame a 2-0 first-period deficit with three consecutive goals for a 3-2 second period lead, but then allowed the game's final four goals. Now, the Caps in this game also won the puck possession battle. For natural stat trick, had 36 five-on-five shot attempts to the Bruins' 27. Caps also won the special teams battle, went 2-6 on the power play and 3-3 on the penalty kill, although the Caps did give up another shorthanded goal. This is becoming a problem for the Caps. They gave up a shorthanded goal to Patrice Bergeron, 12-02, into the first period for a one nothing Bruins lead. This was the fourth shorthanded goal allowed by the Caps over the last 12 games. Uh, that's bad. I mean, you should not allow 
any shorthanded goals, really, okay? You're going to allow a few over the course of a season, but four in a 12-game stretch is way too many. This shorthanded goal came thanks in part to TJ Oshie whiffing at scooping up a loose puck in front of goaltender Vitek Vanacek. But still, overall, like, this was a good game for Cavs special teams. Yeah, you gave up the shorty, but two of six on the power play, three of three on the penalty kill. And how about the Caps power play lately? I know the shorthanded goals aren't good. Like it's hard to just erase those, but the Caps over their last seven games now are 12 for 31 on the power play, have scored multiple power play goals in five of the last seven games. I mean, that's tremendous. That's an outstanding job by the Caps power play, at least from a goal producing standpoint, got to work on the power play from a goals allowed standpoint. But still, you won the puck possession battle. You overall did win the special teams battle. The loss on Sunday to me came down to goaltending and Vitek Vanacek was not good enough. He was the Caps starting goaltender for a fourth time in six games. He stopped just 22 of the 27 shots on goal that he faced. And how about this per natural stat trick? Vitek stopped just three of the seven high danger shots on goal that he faced. Now look, if you watched the game, you know this, VTech was tested, okay? Samsonov really wasn't tested that much in the win at the Flyers on Saturday afternoon. VTech was definitely tested a bunch at the Bruins. Boston had a number of high danger opportunities and VTech on a lot of those goals are like, well, was it really that much he could have done on that goal? And the thing to me is you can always say that about a lot of goals given up by a goaltender. Okay, most of these guys are good to wear. Like the high danger shots on goal are the ones that the goaltenders have the most difficult time with. But understand this from a standpoint of high danger shots on goal and how the goaltender did. VTech on Sunday per natural stat trick, like I said, just three for seven on high danger shots on goal. The Bruins goaltender on Sunday, Tuka Rask, nine for 10 on high danger shots on goal. Like you are allowed to stop high danger shots, okay? They're not easy. They're close up. You got a wide open guy in the slot. Like, I get it. It's not an easy thing to stop, but goaltenders do stop those shots. And VTech did not on Sunday. And, you know, as we embark now on this crucial three game stretch against the Islanders, followed by the two games against the Penguins, followed by the two games at the Rangers, you're going to need good goaltending. I mean, these are essentially playoff type games. And I think, first of all, who Peter Laviolette goes with as the starting goaltender for the majority of these games is going to be telling. But I also think who outperforms who over these seven games is going to be telling. We've wondered, like, as we near the Stanley Cup playoffs, what are the Caps going to do with goaltender? Are they going to keep alternating guys? Are they just going to pick one guy and ride that guy? If so, who is that guy going to be? I think what happens over these next seven games, especially over the next three games, and especially, especially over the next three games, is going to go a long way toward determining that. Who is the number one goaltender for the Caps? come the Stanley Cup playoffs. And right now, at this moment in time, and boy, has this changed a bunch this season, but right now, you'd have to say Samsonov over Vanacek because it wasn't just on Sunday that Vanacek had issues. Remember what happened in Vanacek's last game, that 5-2 loss to the Buffalo Sabres at Capital One Arena on Thursday night. VTech in that game stopped just 17 of the 21 shots on goal that he faced, got pulled in the second period in favor of Craig Anderson, who in his age 39 season actually stopped all eight of the shots on goal that he faced, but VTech in that game per natural stature gave up two goals on low danger shots. So, you know, on Thursday night, it's not like you had the excuse of, well, a bunch of high danger shots. Like, no, he gave up two low danger goals VTech did on Thursday night. Another thing with the Caps on Sunday was they were depleted when it came to their defensemen. And how much of a long-term issue this is going to be, we do not know. But the Caps were without defenseman Zdeno Chara, whom Peter Laviolette after the game called day-to-day. We don't know what the injury is. We don't know how long he'll be out for. 
Uh, defenseman Justin Schultz left the game in the first period with a lower body injury. And so the Caps had to lean on some others a whole lot, including Dmitry Orlov. Dmitry Orlov skated for a season-high 27 minutes, 30 seconds in that game on Sunday. Orlov has been producing like crazy lately from a point standpoint, but man, he was out there a lot on Sunday. And you also had some ugly uh, lines on the stat sheet on Sunday. You lose 6-3. John Carlson, as great as he was on Saturday with the career-high four assists, Carlson on Sunday, a team-worst plus-minus rating of minus five. <laughs> that That is bad, okay? And I know plus-minus isn't everything, but that is uh, a big matzo ball to have to carry with you in a game, a minus five on the score sheet. Also on Sunday, Garnett Hathaway charged with four penalties, a two-minute roughing minor at the end of the first period, a two-minute holding penalty, 13.55 into the second period, and a five-minute boarding major and 10-minute game misconduct penalty, 9.21 into the third period for smashing from behind Bruins defenseman Jared Tenorti into the boards in the right corner of the Caps' offensive zone. That was not pretty. Tenorti came up bleeding And now you got to wonder if some discipline could be coming Hathaway's way. And again, this matters because of what's ahead. Three games against the Islanders, two games at home against Pittsburgh, two games at the Rangers. Is Hathaway about to be suspended? We do not know, but the dude got four penalties on Sunday, including a five-minute boarding major and a 10-minute game misconduct. You know, sometimes at least you get these hits, but the guy doesn't actually get penalized for the hit. Uh, not on Sunday. Uh, Hathaway was in the old sin bin, as Craig Lachlan likes to say, quite a bit. There were positives for the Caps in this 6-3 loss at the Bruins on Sunday afternoon. TJ Oshie did have two goals, an even strength goal, 1950 into the first period, a power play goal, 348 into the second period. Speaking of power play goals, how about the new guy, Anthony Mantha? You know, we're going to talk Wizards in just a little bit here. Which newcomer has been more impactful here for the monumental sports empire over the last week or so? Anthony Mantha for the Caps or Daniel Gafford for the Wizards? So that'd be a good essay question right now. But man, Mantha, he has done something no Caps player has ever done. Scored a goal in each of his first four games with the team. Anthony Mantha, since he came to the Caps, has done nothing but score goals. He scored a goal for a fourth time in as many games as a cap on Sunday. First guy in the history of the franchise to do that. Mantha with a power play goal, 454 into the second period for a 3-2 caps lead, scoring on a wrister while straddling the top of the right circle, uh, scoring in part thanks to a great screen by Lars Eller right in front of the Bruins goaltender, Tuka Rask. And also Mantha has been living up to his reputation as a great puck possession guy. Mantha on Sunday, number two on the Caps in 5-on-5 shot attempt percentage at 68.18 per natural stat trick. Mantha on the ice in 5-on-5 situations on Sunday. Caps had 15 shot attempts for, 7 shot attempts against, and this came off what Mantha did in the 6-3 win at Philadelphia on Saturday. Mantha in that game scoring an even-strength empty net goal, 18-48 into the third period, and finishing number one on the Caps in 5-on-5 shot attempt percentage per natural stat trick at 84.21, 16 shot attempts for, three shot attempts against for the Caps with Mantha on the ice in 5-on-5 situations on Saturday. So he's been terrific so far. Nicholas Backstrom did have two assists on Sunday, and Alex Ovechkin did not score a goal, but he did have a team-high five shots on goal, team-high nine total shots, and was number two on the Caps with five hits, though he did finish with a team-worst plus-minus rating of minus four. few days off with the Caps. They need them, but then after that, the biggest stretch of the season. It's going to be crucial, but it's going to be a lot of fun to watch, and if the Caps are who we hope they are, 
they will emerge from this stretch with a stranglehold on the East Division. So the Capitals had a 500 weekend and the Nationals over the weekend concluded a 500 series, a four-game split with the Arizona Diamondbacks at Nationals Park. You had an 11-6 loss on Thursday night, then a one nothing walk-off win on Friday night, a 6-2 win on Saturday afternoon, but then a 5-2 loss on Sunday afternoon. Look, the Diamondbacks are not good, came into the series just four and eight. If you watch the games, I mean, the lineup is a bunch of no-names, okay? At, at least for now, okay? Maybe eventually, you know, the likes of Josh Van Meter become all-time legends. But for now, Josh Van Meter has a 633 OPS. So to me, it was disappointing that the Nats didn't do better than two and two in this series. Nats are now five and eight with a run differential of minus 15. The good news is that no one's killing it in the National League East so far. So it's not like one team or two teams are doing that much better than everybody else. But the Nats have major issues, and there's no issue bigger than Steven Strasburg. Steven Strasburg was supposed to start on Sunday, but the Nats on Sunday morning announcing that Strasburg has been placed on the 10-day injured list, retroactive to April 15th, with right shoulder inflammation. We all wondered last Tuesday night if Ostrasi was injured. Remember, that was the night of the 14-3 loss at the St. Louis Cardinals, a game in which Strasburg got shelled. Eight runs, seven earned in four innings. He gave up eight hits, three homers, and five singles. He issued five walks, two of which were intentional, had just three strikeouts through just 50 of his 88 pitches for strikes. And it stood out not just because of how bad Strasburg was, but also because of how good Strasburg had been in his regular season debut, that 2 nothing Nats loss to the Atlanta Braves at Nationals Park in Game 2 of a doubleheader on April 7th. Strasburg in that game, six scoreless innings, eight strikeouts, and then come start two, he's like a totally different pitcher. So you wondered if he was hurt. We were told that he wasn't, or at least at the time the belief was that he wasn't. And then, of course, it ends up that he is hurt. This is another example of the Nationals either lying to us about injuries or misleading us when it comes to injuries or just getting it wrong when it comes to injuries. I'm not sure which applies this time, but what I do know is that one of the three does apply. This happens all the time with the Nationals. It happened again here with the Steven Strasburg right shoulder inflammation. The next time you hear anything about any Nationals player and how he's doing from a health standpoint, don't believe it. It may well be true, but the Nats have earned the exact opposite of a benefit of the doubt when it comes to injury information over the years. And what happened with Strasburg here is the latest instance of this. But the bigger takeaway with Strasburg is this, okay? So number one, it's obviously a big blow to the Nationals right now, this season. We don't know when he's going to be back. We don't know when he's back, how healthy he will be. We don't know if this right shoulder inflammation is something that's just going to go bye-bye and never be heard from again, or if it's going to linger with Strasburg throughout this season. Like, this is really bad news. To me, there was no bigger wild card for the Nationals being good in 2021 than Steven Strasburg being good and being healthy. And now those things are very much up in the air because he's on the IL once again. The other thing, though, is a much bigger picture thing, but it matters very much. And that is, this is season two of the seven-year, $245 million contract that Strasburg was re-signed to in December 2019. And I'm not going to be a phony. I advocated for the Nationals to re-sign Steven Strasburg. But I understood at the time it was a risk giving a mega money contract to an oft-injured pitcher already in his 30s. This is Steven Strasburg's age 32 season. So far, over the first two seasons of this, again, seven-year, $245 million deal, 
He, in 2020, made two starts, underwent season-ending carpal tunnel neuritis surgery in his right hand, August 26th of last year. And now this year, he has made two starts, and now he's on the 10-day injured list with right shoulder inflammation. This doesn't mean that the contract is going to end up being a debacle, but we sure as heck ain't off to a great start when it comes to it. You know, it really does make you appreciate Max Scherzer's seven-year, $210 million deal, of which we are in the final season. Max has been a staple in the Nationals rotation. He has been a pillar of durability. He has been excellent in every season he's pitched for the Nationals. Here you have Strasburg, and it's not necessarily his fault, okay? I'm not one of these people who's going to sit here and call the guy, you know, a dandy or he's soft or he's a wuss, okay? Steven Strasburg is an all-time October warrior. That should never be forgotten. But the guy has gotten hurt a ton in his career. We thought that maybe he was past some of that with how durable he was in 2019. But we've gone right back to Strasburg being oft injured over these last two years. And if this contract becomes what, let's be honest, most mega money contracts in baseball become, especially for pitchers, and that is an albatross, i.e. something the team regrets sooner rather than later, that is a very tough way to be. Because big money contracts that don't work out, it's not just about the player who is under contract. It's about the opportunity cost, how having that guy being paid all this money compels you to keep the guy on the team and maybe eat up starts or eat up playing time from other younger, more deserving people. Big money contracts that don't work out also can suffocate clubs from making other moves, i.e. signing somebody else who might be better, but you don't do that because you're already paying this guy all this money, even though this guy isn't working out. So we're not there yet with Strasburg, okay? I'm not trying to be all gloom and doom here, but you can't talk Steven Strasburg and not view him through the prism of this contract. This was a risk when the Nats gave him this deal. Seven years, $245 million, already in his 30s, off injured. And so far, it has not worked out well at all. And so the Nats starting pitcher for Sunday's game was Paolo Espino. And that's another thing to get into off the Steven Strasburg placement on the 10-day injured list. This is where we're at with the national starting pitching depth, that Paolo Espino is who the Nats have to go to on Sunday. Understand who Paolo Espino is, okay? And I say this with all due respect to Paolo and the Espino family. Paolo Espino is in his age 34 season. He has had multiple stints in the Nats farm system, but didn't pitch for them at the major league level until September of last year. Paolo Espino is not some rising flamethrower in the Nationals farm system who just had to be summoned to the major league level sooner than anticipated because of the Strasburg injury. Paolo Espino is a journeyman in his mid-30s who was summoned from the alternate training site in Fredericksburg, Virginia on Sunday morning. And to his credit, he wasn't that bad on Sunday. Two runs, four to third innings, gave up five hits, two of which were homers, but the other three hits were singles, only issued one walk, did have three strikeouts. You know, he was put in a tough spot. He gave up a couple of leadoff homers, a leadoff shot to Josh Rojas in the top of the first, a leadoff homer to Carson Kelly in the top of the fourth on a one-two pitch. But that's not the point. You are competing in maybe the deepest division in Major League Baseball. You are trying to unseat the three-time defending National League East champion, Atlanta Braves. And this is the depth that you go into the season with, where Paolo Espino is essentially your second starter off the bench with, you know, Eric Fetty right now being your first, right? Fetty's been eating up the starts with John Lester out and Paolo Espino is the second guy you go to, okay? Now they could have gone with Austin Voth, but they like him as a reliever right now. You know, it's not necessarily that Paolo Espino is that high up the organizational depth chart, but that's the thing. The organizational depth chart ain't that deep. 
And so you have to go to him to start for Steven Strasburg in a spot start scenario on Sunday. Like that to me is emblematic of the Nationals' lack of pitching depth. It's been an issue for a while now. I think it really stands out now this season with the issues the Nats have had. John Lester missing the start of the season, Patrick Corbin struggling, and now Steven Strasburg on the 10-day injured list. Another consequence of what's going on with the Nationals' rotation is what's going on with the bullpen. Now, the bullpen overall has been good, but the bullpen is being used a lot. And I'm not sure how long it can last the bullpen being good with the bullpen being used this much. I want you to listen to the bullpen usage over these four games against the Arizona Diamondbacks. The 11-6 loss on Thursday night, five Nats relievers had to throw seven innings, did allow just one run, but had to throw seven innings. The one nothing walk-off win on Friday night, two Nats relievers had to be used, combined for two scoreless innings. So, okay, that's perfectly acceptable. The 6-2 win on Saturday afternoon, five Nats relievers had to be used to cover four innings, did allow just one run over the four innings. And then on Sunday, because you had Paolo Espino starting, four Nationals relievers had to be used to throw four and two-thirds innings. And unlike games one through three, the overall bullpen output on Sunday wasn't good. The four Nats relievers combined to allow three runs in four and two-thirds innings on six hits and six walks, only one of which was intentional. Now, the first reliever did his job. Sam Clay retired both of the batters he faced for the final two outs in the top of the fifth. But then the problem started. Austin Voth gave up a run in two innings. He allowed a run in the top of the seventh on a two-out full count, seven-pitch walk of Josh Rojas, despite him having been down in the count at 1.12, followed by a two-out RBI double by Paven Smith. Ryan Harper then allowed a run in the top of the eighth on a leadoff double by David Peralta, a pass ball by Jan Gomes, a four-pitch walk of Carson Kelly, and an RBI sack fly by Eduardo Escobar. Harper then, by the way, gave up a two-out single to Nick Heath. And then Kyle McGowan had all kinds of issues in giving up a run in the top of the ninth. He gave up a leadoff full count single to Josh Rojas, despite him having been down to the count at 1.12. A two-out intentional walk of the ex-Nat as Drew Cabrera. We had a two-out run scoring throwing error by catcher Jan Gomes on a pickoff attempt. And McGowan then issued back-to-back two-out walks of Carson Kelly and Eduardo Escobar, despite Escobar having been down to the count at one point. I just hope that Sunday wasn't the first neon flashing sign that the bullpen already has been overused. And now that you need it, maybe more than ever, with Strasburg being on the IL, the bullpen isn't going to be able to provide as you need it to. Oh, by the way, speaking of the Nationals bullpen over the weekend, the bullpen lost two players to the 10-day injured list. The Nationals on Friday placing Luis Avilan on the 10-day IL with left elbow inflammation and recalling reliever Kyle McGowan from the alternate training side in Fredericksburg. And then came the double whammy, Davey Martinez in his pregame Zoom press conference on Saturday revealing that Avilan had a UCL tear. UCL tears are what lead to Tommy John surgeries. It's not a definite that Avilan is going to be needing Tommy John surgery. But he's either going to do that or go through rest and rehab. Either way, he ain't coming back anytime soon. Avilan's been used a lot in these recent blow-up starts by Steven Strasburg and Patrick Corbin. Avilan was awful in that relief outing in the Strasburg blow-up game, but was actually quite good in the Corbin blow-up start game. That 11-6 loss to the Diamondbacks on Thursday night. Avilan tossing two scoreless and hitless innings in that game. But that's the last time we're going to see old Luis Avilan for at least a little while. So Avilan to the 10-day injured list with left elbow inflammation. And Wander Suero on Sunday got placed on the 10-day IL with a left oblique strain. Suero pitching 
in Saturday's 6-2 win over the Diamondbacks, but only facing one batter. Suero pitching for the eighth time in 12 games on Saturday, begins the top of the ninth by issuing a full count 11-pitch walk to Eduardo Escobar, despite him having been down in the count at 1.02, but Suero then leaving the game due to injury. So Avilan leaned on a ton, goes to the I.L. Suero used a ton, goes to the I.L. Like, the bullpen already is paying the toll of having been leaned on as much as it has had to be leaned on. And the way things look right now, you're only going to be needing the bullpen more with Steven Strasburg on the I.L., with his left elbow inflammation. Now, the good news with the Nats rotation, I know you're probably like, Goldie, can you give me something good here? Yes, I can. The good news is what happened in games two and three against the Diamondbacks. Max Scherzer was outstanding in the one nothing walk-off win over Arizona on Friday night. Seven scoreless innings on 10 strikeouts versus just two hits, both of which were singles and two walks on 106 pitches, 68 of which were strikes. This was vintage Max Scherzer, especially the way he ended the outing. Max is so great at ending his great outings in great fashion. And you talk about putting an exclamation mark on this start on Friday night. Max, a perfect top of the seventh, struck out the side. Josh Van Meter, Eduardo Escobar, Carson Kelly, all went down swinging. Just a terrific outing for Max Scherzer on Friday night. And boy, did the Nats need it. And then on Saturday afternoon, Eric Fetty. Yes, Eric Fetty was great. One run in five innings on nine strikeouts versus five hits, a homer and four singles, and a walk, 95 pitches, 60 of which were strikes. Second consecutive good to great outing for Eric Fetty. Remember, Fetty in the 5-2 win at the St. Louis Cardinals this past Monday night was solid. You know, I don't want to overstate what he did, but one run in four and two-thirds innings on five strikeouts versus just two hits, both of which were singles, and two walks. Fetty has been quite good over these last two outings. Now, remember, he got bombed in his first start of the season, that 7-6 loss to the Atlanta Braves at Nationals Park in game one of a doubleheader on April 7th. Six runs, five earned in one and two-thirds innings. But since then, Fetty's done a really nice job, and he's become much more of a strikeout pitcher. You know, Fetty's never really been that much of a strikeout pitcher, and yet you look at what he's done over his last two outings, a combined two runs allowed over nine and two-thirds innings with 14 strikeouts. I mean, that's dominance, 14 strikeouts over nine and two-thirds innings. As disappointing as things have been with Strasburg and Corbin, that's how encouraging those things have been with Fetty and Joe Ross. I mean, it sounds crazy, but where would the Nats be right now without Eric Fetty and Joe Ross and the jobs that those two guys have done for the Nationals so far this year? Just a tremendous job by Eric Fetty on Saturday afternoon. Can't say enough about that. Uh, when it came to the Nats' offense over the weekend, it was a mixed bag in this four-game split with the Arizona Diamondbacks. So the best of the bunch was Trey Turner. Starting shortstop, number one batter in all four games in the series. He goes 7-for-17 seven with two homers, five singles a walk, and he goes 2-for-2 two two on stolen bases. Trey in the 5-2 loss on Sunday afternoon, 2-for-4 with two solo homers. Had a two-out solo homer in the bottom of the third. Had a leadoff full count homer in the top of the ninth, despite having been down to the count at one point. 1-2. Uh, Trey in the 6-2 win on Saturday afternoon, 3-for-5 with three singles and a stolen base, including a beautiful plate appearance to begin the bottom of the third. Had a leadoff single, despite having been down in the count at one point. Oh, two. Trey, I tell you what, he had a great weekend. He is a very good leadoff batter. I think, though, he could do just as well as a number two batter. And in fact, given that he hits for so much power, I think you're actually better off with him as a number two batter or even a number three batter and Juan Soto as a number two batter. More on the man who had been the Nationals every game leadoff batter coming up 
in just a bit. It was a very good series for Kyle Schwarber. He was in that starting left fielder in all four games, goes four for 16 with a homer, a double, and three singles, and nothing was bigger than that homer. The one nothing win on Friday night, Kyle Schwarber, a wicked one-out walk-off homer to the second deck in right field off lefty Diamondbacks reliever Alex Young in the bottom of the ninth. And I emphasize that word lefty because Kyle Schwarber is a lefty batter, and yet he can do damage off lefty pitching, as was the case on Friday night. But the homer was some kind of shot, one of those no-doubters where the second Schwarber makes contact you know the ball is gone. You know the game is over. The the homer went and projected 463 feet per stat cast. It is the fourth longest homer at Nationals Park in the stat cast era. That's since the start of the 2015 season. That was some shot by Kyle Schwarber. And then he was back at it on Saturday afternoon in the 6-2 win, 3-4 for four with a double and a couple of singles. So very good weekend for Kyle Schwarber. Stalin Castro had a good weekend starting third baseman in all four games. He went six of 14 with a homer, two doubles, two singles, and a walk. And Jan Gomes was the starting catcher in games one, three, and four. Didn't do much in games one and four, but in game three, the win on Saturday afternoon, Gomes three for four with a homer, two singles, and two RBIs. So a good offensive day for Gomes there on Saturday. Now, it was not a good series offensively for Juan Soto. Uh, Juan Soto, the starting right fielder, number two batter in all four games in the series. He overall has been good this season, but he wasn't very good in this series. Just two for 14 with two singles and three walks. It was also a rough series for Josh Bell. He was in that starting first baseman, a number three batter in games one, two, and three, and struck out as a pinch hitter in game four for the series. One for 14 with a double and five strikeouts. And then there is the Victor Robles situation. And, you know, this is disappointing to me that the Nats already have seemingly pulled the plug on Victor Robles as their every game number one batter. You know, Victor Robles remains the Nats' primary starting center fielder, although he did not start game three, but he was out there as a starting center fielder in games one, two, and four, entered game three as a pinch hitter, and then remained in the game as the Nats' center fielder. It's not like Robles was that bad at the plate in this series. Over the four games, he goes three for nine with three singles, a walk, and a hit by pitch. I mean, that's not exemplary, but it's also really not that bad. I mean, plenty of guys were worse and yet Robles has been demoted in the batting lineup. He remained as the number nine batter in the game on Thursday night. Then he was uh, elevated to the number eight spot in game two on Friday night. Robles doesn't even start on Saturday afternoon, and then he's back out there as the number eight batter on Sunday afternoon. And I, I just, look, I know Robles has been kind of a mixed bag so far this season, but he had a very good exhibition season. He was at one time, remember, a very highly talented prospect. When it was Robles and Soto in the minors, it was Robles who was the more well-regarded prospect than Soto was. And yet Robles, like, okay, just a few games into the season, we're abandoning him as the every game leadoff guy. Like, we're not going to give him a little more time. We're not going to see this thing through a little more. You know, the Nats have a tendency to do this where they talk about doing something that they'll tell anyone who listened that they're doing that something and then they either don't do the something or they do it for like a split second and then they abandon ship on the something. And they've done that here with Victor Robles as the leadoff batter. And I just don't get it. Like it'd be one thing if he was an older player or if like he was just a total lost cause or he's not someone who you look at as really profiling as being a very good hitter at the major league level. But again, this guy was a very well-regarded prospect. You know, there was a thought at one time that this guy's a 5 tool player. Let's see what he can do. Like give him more than just a handful of games as their leadoff batter. I find that very strange. And how about this? In the game on Friday night, the games that Jan Gomes did not start at catcher, Alex Avila was the starting catcher, and Davey 
had Robles batting behind Alex Avila. In the one nothing win on Friday night, Alex Avila was the starting catcher and the number seven batter. And Victor Robles was the starting center fielder and the number eight batter. Can you explain that to me? Cuckoo! Cuckoo! Yeah, I mean, Alex Avila, look, he brings things to the Nats in terms of defense, in terms of game calling, okay? Alex Avila as a backup catcher, I am fine with. But Alex Avila is in his age 34 season. He is an aging, declining player. Alex Avila last season for the Minnesota Twins had a batting average of 184. He had a slugging percentage of 286. Like, Alex Avila is not a very good hitter. And yet you have him batting ahead of Robles on Friday night? Like, why? Cuckoo! Cuckoo! I I just, I don't get that at all. Uh, It's very strange to me how quickly the Nationals seemingly have soured on Victor Robles as a batter. Give the guy more of an opportunity, and then you can bat him in the eighth spot or even the ninth spot if you're that dead set on doing the dopey thing with a pitcher bats eighth and a guy like Robles bats ninth. But at least give him a shot. Don't, don't give him, you know, just a few games and then pull the plug on it and say, okay, you know, we can't have him as the number one batter anymore. I, I just find that very strange that Davey Martinez has done this so quickly with Victor Robles. Now, speaking of Robles, he did have some excellent defensive moments in the series. This is why Victor Robles is your starting center fielder. How about the bullet that Robles unleashed on Sunday afternoon? A gorgeous outfield assist in the top of the third as he gunned down the ex-nat as Druba Cabrera at second base on a single that Cabrera blasted off the center field wall. Robles catching the ball on one hop and then firing a laser that never touched the ground to third baseman Starlin Castro at second base to get Cabrera easily in trying to stretch the single into a double. Also defensively from Robles in this series, the one nothing walk-off win on Friday night. Robles, a terrific catch for the second out in the top of the eighth with the game scoreless, a running backhanded catch after which he tumbled onto the warning track and retiring pinch hitter Pavin Smith. So some good stuff defensively from Robles. You also had some really good stuff from catcher Jan Gomes, two-third baseman Starlin Castro when it came to runners trying to steal. The win on Saturday afternoon, the loss on Sunday afternoon. Each game featured an instance of Gomes throwing out a diamondback trying to steal second base and each time Starlin Castro applying an excellent tag. The Nationals, like a lot of teams in baseball are doing this now, where you throw on attempted steals basically behind the runner and the the guy covering second base catches the ball and snaps the glove down immediately onto the runner's, you know, helmet or back, that kind of a thing. The Nats did that here, and Starling Castro was excellent with these tags. These great catches and then, like, snap tags immediately down. So very good to see that defensively from the Nationals in this series. But there also were more boo-boos from the Nationals defensively in this series. You know, some real sloppiness on Saturday afternoon. Andrew Stevenson, the game that he starts in center field, he commits a fielding error with two outs in the top of the first. Stevenson just misses catching a fly ball off the bat of Josh Van Meter in deep left center. That You know, there's barely any wins. So I don't know if Stevenson lost the ball in the sun or feared a collision with the left fielder Kyle Schwarber or maybe both. But, you know, that was amateur hour, what we saw there. There were multiple defensive screw-ups by the Nats on consecutive plate appearances in the 6-2 win on Saturday afternoon in the top of the ninth. Trey Turner committing a fielding error on a double play ball. He bobbled a Nick Ahmed grounder to put runners on first and second with no outs. And then third baseman Starling Castro, who is backpedaling, drops a fly ball off the bat of Steven Vogt in shallow left field. Now, Kyle Schwarber, who perhaps should have called off Castro, did then throw to shortstop Trey Turner at third base for a force out. So Castro wasn't charged with an error, but that was an ugly moment defensively for the Nationals. And then in the later innings of the 5-2 loss on Sunday afternoon, Jan Gomes had some issues at catcher, had a pass ball in the Diamondbacks' one-run eighth and committed a run-scoring throwing error on a pickoff throw 
in the Diamondbacks. One run, ninth inning. Next up for the Nationals, three-game series against the St. Louis Cardinals at Nationals Park. Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday afternoon. National starting pitchers in the series are Joe Ross on Monday night, Patrick Corbin on Tuesday night, Max Scherzer on Wednesday afternoon. Corbin is the giant question mark right now. He has been a mess so far. If he's a mess again on Tuesday night, I don't know how you proceed with him in your rotation, at least for now. You know, you may have to ship Corbin to the 10-day injured list the way you just did Steven Strasburg, but Joe Ross has been in a great place. He's two for two in terms of being really good over his first two starts of the season, and he'll oppose Jack Flaherty on Monday night at 7.05. Nats are five and eight. I mean, it's way too early to panic, but it's not too early to be concerned about some things. I worried about the Nats going into the season, and so far, the age, the reliance on 430-somethings in the rotation, the lack of depth, the defensive issues, they've all reared their ugly heads. You hope you don't see more of this coming up in these three games against St. Louis. So guess who is tied for a spot in the NBA's play-in tournament in the Eastern Conference as we speak on this Monday? Yes, our Wizards. The damn Washington Wizards. That's right, Stephen A. The Washington Wizards, who went 2-0 and over the weekend, are in a virtual tie for 10th in the Eastern Conference. And remember, this season, 10th matters in each conference because there is going to be a play-in tournament between the end of the regular season and the beginning of the postseason between seeds 7 through 10 in each conference. So the Wizards won on Friday night a 117-115 overtime win over the New Orleans Pelicans at Capital One Arena. The Wizards then won again on Saturday night a 121-100 blowout win over the Eastern Conference worst Detroit Pistons at Capital One Arena. Now the Toronto Raptors did win on Sunday evening a 112-106 victory over the Oklahoma City Thunder. So the Wizards are 23 and 33. They, the Chicago Bulls, who also are 23 and 33, and the Raptors, who are 24 and 34, are deadlocked in a virtual tie for 10th in the Eastern Conference. You can't beat Eastern Conference basketball where 10 games under 500 still has you very much in the postseason mix. It has been such a weird season for the Wizards. And we have yelled and screamed on this podcast a bunch about all the bad times for the Wizards. But we have also properly praised our team when it has come to some of the victories. You know, the two wins over the NBA-leading Utah Jazz. The very good trip out west a few weeks back. And now, this most recent stretch. Here's the bottom line for the Wizards. You basically can break down their season into four phases. Phase one, a 3-12 and start. Phase two, a 10-6 and stretch to get to 13-18. and Phase three, a 4-14 and stretch to drop the Wiz to 17 and 32 and now this phase four a six and one stretch that has the Wizards at 23 and 33 and the Wizards won these two games over the weekend despite being without Davies Bertans Uh, he missed these two games due to personal reasons which turned out were his wife giving birth to a son so mazel mazel to Davies and the family when it came to the overtime win over the Pelicans on Friday night so first of all the Wizards now very bizarrely are 14 and 10 against Western Conference teams this season as compared to 9-23 and against Eastern Conference teams this season. Why? I have no idea. The West is so much better than the East, and yet the Wizards have feasted on the West, relatively speaking, and gotten crushed by the East. Uh, the Wizards in this game on Friday night did blow a 13-point second quarter lead, but overcame a nine-point deficit in a fourth quarter in which they never led. The two teams in the final minute of regulation went a combined 0-5 
from the field. Yeah, pretty this game was not in so many ways on Friday night. The Wiz won despite going just four for 27 on threes. Did hold the Pelicans to seven to 28 on threes. The Wizards won despite struggling on free throws, just 23 of 32. The Wizards won despite having just three offensive rebounds to the Pelicans 11. The Wizards won despite three of their five starters, Rui Hachimura, Denny Avdia, and Alex Len combining for just 14 points. The Wizards won despite Brandon Ingram scoring 24 points in the first half. The Wiz, though, did hold them to 10 points after halftime. Then in the blowout victory over the Eastern Conference worst Pistons on Saturday night, uh, this was more an easy breezy kind of win. The Wizards never trailed in the game, led by as many as 24 points in the third quarter against, again, a bad Detroit team. The Pistons with this loss fell to 17 and 40 on the season. Wizards shot the ball well, 53.2% shooting, including 9 to 16 on threes. And the Wizards played some defense on Saturday night, held the Pistons to just 45 points in the second half, held the Pistons to 9 to 27 on threes, forced 18 turnovers, finishing with 11 steals. In terms of some of the heroes for the Wizards over the weekend here. So interesting weekend for Bradley Beal. He had a very bizarre game on Friday night. He was a putrid 0 for 9 on threes and had a team worst plus minus rating of minus 13. But also for Beal on Friday night, 10 of 20 on twos, 10 of 11 on free throws, finished with 30 points, six assists versus four turnovers and four rebounds. But we've talked about this. Beal has not had a very good season when it comes to shooting threes, although he did shoot the three well in the win over Detroit on Saturday night. Four six on threes, nine to sixteen on two, seven of eight on free throws, thirty-seven points, two steals, and a team best plus minus rating of plus twenty-five in just thirty-four minutes, fifty-two seconds of playing time as a starter. Russell Westbrook was the hero on Friday night. Three for six on threes. It was amazing. Westbrook was by far the Wizards' best three-point shooter on Friday night. He went three of six on threes. The rest of the Wizards went one for 21 on threes. You know you're in trouble when Westbrook is your top three-point shooter in the game, but he was good on Friday night. Also went 10 of 18 on twos, seven of 11 on free throws. More on that in a moment. Westbrook finishing that game with 36 points, 15 rebounds, and nine assists versus four turnovers. He took over in overtime. Westbrook scored 10 of the Wizards' 12 points in overtime, including going two or three on threes. And I mentioned the seven of 11 on free throws. This was hysterical. He made two free throws with 1.9 seconds left in overtime to put the Wiz up 117-115, even though he accidentally made the second free throw attempt. He's trying to miss it to prevent a Pelicans inbounds pass. And so time would just expire. But he ended up making the free throw he was trying to miss. So Westbrook, who has not been good on free throws this season, when he wants to make free throws, misses them. And yet when he wants to miss free throws, he makes them, apparently. That was something else on Friday night. But then Westbrook on Saturday night, another triple-double. Now, he didn't shoot particularly well on Saturday night to 7 of 17 on twos, just 1 of 3 on free throws, but he extended his single season and career franchise records with his 25th triple-double, 15 points, 14 rebounds, 11 assists versus 2 turnovers to go with 2 steals in just 30 minutes, 11 seconds of playing time. And Westbrook now is 10 triple-doubles away from tying the NBA record for career regular season triple-doubles. The record is Oscar Robertson's 181, Westbrook now at 171. He very realistically could tie that mark, could break that mark this season. It's been an amazing year for Westbrook, certainly uh, from a triple-double standpoint. Also, we've got to talk about Daniel Gafford, okay? Daniel Gafford went nuclear over the weekend. The win over the Pelicans on Friday night 
Gafford, 18 points on 7 of 11 shooting, 7 rebounds, 4 blocks, and a team best plus-minus rating of plus 16 in 25 minutes, 57 seconds off the bench. And it wasn't just that. Three of the four blocks came over the fourth quarter in overtime, including a big block of Zion Williamson on an attempted putback layup in the final minute of the fourth quarter, and another big block of Zion on a driving layup attempt in the paint with less than three minutes left in overtime. And that was a crucial block because that led to a Russell Westbrook transition layup and a 113-109 Wizards lead. And then came what happened in the blood of the Pistons on Saturday night. Gafford, eight points on 4-7 shooting, eight rebounds, and four more blocks in just 16 minutes, seven seconds of playing time off the bench. He's been on a minutes restriction. That's why he's not playing more. But man, has he been impactful so far. I mentioned this earlier, but you got Anthony Mantha, the recent Capitals trade acquisition, killing it for the Caps. You got Daniel Gafford, the recent Wizards trade acquisition, killing it for the Wiz. It's been great to see. It's been bizarre for the Wizards here these last few games because three-fifths of the starters really aren't doing that much, talking about Rui Hachimura, Denny Avdia, and Alex Len. Len has actually been pretty efficient. He just doesn't play a whole heck of a lot. And on Saturday night, Len and Hachimura did deal with injury. Uh, Len ended up playing for just six minutes, 40 seconds, due to right ankle soreness. Hachimura uh, played for exactly 23 minutes, but dealt with left knee soreness. But, you know, Rui did not shoot the ball well over the weekend. The win over the Pelicans on Friday night. Hachimura in that game, just 3 of 13 from the field, including 0 of 5 on threes. And then Hachimura on Saturday night, 2 of 7 shooting. Now, you know, Rui does do some other things. He actually played a ton in that game against the Pelicans, but uh, the shooting left a lot to be desired uh, over the weekend for him. Also, Wizards getting some good minutes again from Robin Lopez. Robin Lopez in the blowout of Detroit on Saturday night, 15 points on 7 of 10 shooting, 5 rebounds and 3 assists versus 1 turnover and 22-20 off the bench. And how about Ish Smith? Ish Smith has actually had some really nice games for the Wizards lately, including on Saturday night, 16 points on 6 of 8 shooting, including 2 of 2 on 3s. Five assists versus one turnover and three rebounds in 23-54 off the bench. He did commit five fouls, but Ish was quite good for the Wizards over the weekend. So yeah, man, like this whole thing with the Wizards really is perplexing because this is supposed to be a loaded 2021 NBA draft. And there's no doubt you could very much argue the Wizards would be so much better off just tanking the rest of the season get as many ping pong balls as possible and try to get as high of a first round draft choice as possible. But on the other hand, you could say the Wizards never do well in the NBA draft lottery. And this franchise is in dire need of some true hope and some real optimism. And so if you can make a charge as this season goes on, especially on the backs of guys who are set to be here moving forward, Beal, Westbrook, Gafford, Hachimura, Avdia, that's going to speak well. You know, that's going to make you feel like, okay, there is something here upon which to build. Of course, the downside to that, well, that may well mean that Scott Brooks is back as head coach. I still think that is very dubious, whether he's back or not after this season. But yeah, I mean, if the Wizards play well down the stretch, make the play-in tournament, and then do some damage in the play-in tournament, you do wonder if that maybe saves Scott Brooks' job. But for now... I am happy that the Wizards are doing well. I'm not going to lie. I can't sit here and tell you that I'm all upset that they're winning. I like to see my teams do well, especially again when the doing well is happening with younger players and guys who you feel like can be a part of something moving forward. I have no delusions about what these Wizards are. I do think they need a better, more defensive-minded head coach moving forward, but you can't help how you feel 
And I know this, watching them win, seeing them do well here lately, it feels good. With all the negativity with this team, it is nice to talk about this team in a positive way, at least for once. The damn Washington Wizards. Yes, thank you, Stephen A. Wizards are home to the Oklahoma City Thunder on Monday night at 8, then home to the Golden State Warriors Wednesday night at 7, then at the Thunder Friday night at 8. So the next three games against Western Conference teams, I don't know why, but the Wizards are at their best against the West. I hope that continues this coming week. All right, when it comes to the Orioles, uh, look, they are going to wind up with another very bad record this season. But for now, things actually aren't so bad. The O's won two or three at the Texas Rangers over the weekend. You know, the Rangers themselves aren't supposed to be that good, but very few teams are expected to be worse than the O's. O's now are seven and nine on the season. Same record that one of the preseason darlings in Major League Baseball, the Toronto Blue Jays currently have. And the O's at seven and nine, a game and to have better than the New York Yankees, who are five and 10. The Yankees have lost five straight. The Yankees suffered a three-game sweep at home to the Tampa Bay Rays over the weekend. And to that, I say, quite simply, <laughs> yes, anytime that the Yankees are struggling is a good time. But this overall was a good weekend for the O's. Again, winning two or three at Texas. 5-2 win on Friday night. 6-1 win on Saturday night. And then a one nothing 10-inning loss on Sunday afternoon. So what really stands out as much as anything is the pitching. The Orioles pitching in this series was quite good. The starting pitching, you know, I don't want to overstate it, but especially in game three, really was good. And then games one and two was good enough. Jorge Lopez in the 5-2 win on Friday night, two runs in five innings on eight strikeouts versus just two hits, both of which, though, were solo homers and a walk. Dean Kramer in the 6-1 win on Saturday night, one run in four and two-thirds innings on six strikeouts versus five hits, all singles and a walk. Andy threw 50 of his 79 pitches for strikes. It was kind of surprising after the game, the O's actually optioning Kramer to their alternate training site at Double A Bowie. Now, he'll be back at the major league level, you know, hopefully sooner rather than later. But, um, you know, Kramer had not done that well prior to this start on Saturday night. But, like, he's a young arm. You got to let him grow and develop. And so hopefully he's back sooner rather than later. And then John Means on Sunday afternoon was outstanding. Seven scoreless innings, nine strikeouts versus three hits, a double and two singles and two walks. He threw 66 of his 96 pitches for strikes. I mean, he clearly ended up being a hard luck guy in that he gets a no decision in a one nothing 10 inning loss. Another example of why you should not ever go by a pitcher's one loss record, but Means was terrific in that game on Sunday afternoon. And then the Orioles bullpen. How about this? Orioles relievers over the three games combined to allow zero earned runs over 11 innings. The win on Friday night, four guys, Paul Fry, Dylan Tate, Adam Pletko, and Cesar Valdez combined for four scoreless innings, seven strikeouts versus two hits, both of which were singles and no walks. The win on Saturday night, four Orioles relievers, Wade LeBlanc, Travis Lakin Sr., Tanner Scott, and Sean Armstrong, who exactly, uh, they combined for four and a third scoreless innings. And then on Sunday afternoon, you finally had a bit of a hiccup here, but still four guys, Pletko, Fry, Valdez, and Lakins 
combined to allow one run unearned in two and two-thirds innings. And the run that was allowed was the unearned run in the bottom of the 10th inning, right? Because this season, again, you're doing extra innings with a runner beginning each inning on second base. Lakin's uh, allowing the unearned run in the bottom of the 10th. He had issues there. Two walks, two wild pitches, and a two-out bases-loaded walk-off single by Nate Lowe. So, okay, fine. But still, the bullpen was terrific overall. Uh, in the series. By the way, the Nate Lowe walk-off single, you know, it's, it's, it's easy to lose track of this. In Texas, obviously, things have opened up big time. The announced attendance at Globe Life Field in Arlington, Texas on Sunday afternoon, 24,267. It's just remarkable to see an attendance number like that now because we're so used to, you know, zero fans or like 2,000 fans or maybe if the emperor mayor is really nice, 5,000 fans. And here you had a globe life field, 24,000 plus on Sunday afternoon. So Orioles pitching in a series was quite good. The offense was good in games one and two, was bad in game three. I mean, you got shut out over 10 innings. But still, with the Orioles this year, right, it's about the young building blocks and you had some good moments throughout the series. Cedric Mullins, the starting center fielder, the number one batter, been very good so far. Another good game for him on Friday night. Had an RBI double in the top of the third and a single in the Orioles' three-run fifth. DJ Stewart, the Orioles' starting left fielder and number three batter, was quite good in games one and two in the series. Friday night, a one-out, two-run homer in the Orioles' three-run fifth. Saturday night, two singles, including a two-out first-pitch RBI single in the Orioles' three-run ninth. Rio Ruiz had a big game on Friday night, a two-out first pitch solo homer in the top of the fourth, a two-out walk in the top of the second. And the O's got production from two of their veteran signings over the weekend. And these are the chips to be flipped, as I have said. These are guys who are brought here on short-term contracts. You hope that these guys do well, and then you can flip them mid-season for some more prospects. But Freddie Galvis, starting shortstop and number nine batter in games one and two. Game one, he has a triple and a double. Game two, he has two doubles and two singles. Michael Franco, starting third baseman and number four batter in game two on Saturday night. Two out, two run homer in the Orioles, three run ninth and two singles. Franco, though, did get thrown out at home for the second out in the top of the 10th on Sunday afternoon as he was the runner on second to begin the inning, but did not break right away on a Trey Mancini one-out single to right field, waiting to see if the ball would be caught. Uh, It was not, and then Franco got gunned down at home. But whatever, it's not about wins and losses this season for the Orioles. It's about the young guys doing well. And truth be told, you're probably better off losing a game like that on Sunday then you are winning it. O's are off on Monday, then comes a two-game series at the Miami Marlins, then a day off on Thursday, then a seven-game homestand, a three-game series against the Oakland A's, followed by a four-game series against, yes, the New York Yankees, who, in case you haven't heard, are 5-10. and <laughs> All right, that will do it for you and me for now. Please, if you haven't already, subscribe to the Al Galdi podcast on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. Subscribing does not cost anything. Most of you know that, but just for those who do not. And subscribing really does help out the podcast, as does rating and reviewing the podcast. So especially for those of you with iPhones and listening on Apple Podcasts, just a quick five-star rating and like a one-sentence review, that helps a lot in terms of making this podcast work. I know that so many of you listening have already done these things to you. I say thank you. And if you haven't done these things, if you could just take like the 30 seconds it takes to do these things, that would be much appreciated. I have lots of good stuff planned for the podcast this week, so it's great to have you on board. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast 
at yahoo.com. Have a great rest of your Monday. I'll talk to you on Tuesday. What I'm trying to do is be as honest as I can. And I don't normally do that. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.